Interview number 118, Diane Edgecombe, Place-Based Nature Storytelling. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling. This is Brother Wolf, and I am so thrilled that you have taken the time, that you have found the energy, that you have built the gumption to come here to join with us and to enter into this conversation. This conversation on the thing I love so much that I hope that you also will find the joy, if you don't have it already, that you also contain the passion, that you also carry the flame for that love, for that desire, for that passion that is the art of storytelling. For today, I have found a guest, a guest who knows something unique, who brings a new thing to the table, and that is Diane Edgecombe. But before we get to her, I just want to remind you that maybe this could be the most important thing that happens to you all day. And I'm sure that many of you have activities you're doing. If you're driving, that's fine. Keep driving. But otherwise, maybe it would be good to put down that book, to stop writing on that notepad, to stop doing the dishes even, and just sit and take in what this guest has to offer you. Because perhaps this experience, perhaps this point of view will really help you to move forward in your journey as a storyteller. Diane, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. First, let me tell you a little bit more about Diane. One of the most versatile voices in the storytelling movement today, Diane has been lauded by Publishers Weekly as a master of her craft. Her storytelling concerts, accompanied by Harper Margaret Chamberlain, have timeless themes ranging from solstice events rich in seasonal mythology to classic Celtic tales, such as her award-winning adaptation of Dare Day of the Sorrows. Original stories include Storytelling World Award winner Patty Soros and Twilight of the Stones, a true ghost story about the standing stones of England. Nationally recognized for her leadership in linking storytelling to nature themes and environmental education, Diane Edgecombe has designed performances and workshops for leading nature organizations throughout the Northeast. She's been a featured regularly at the Three Apples Storytelling Festival, on NPR, at Charlestown Working Theater, and at acclaimed folk clubs such as the Club Passion. Her book, A Fire in My Heart, Kurdish Tales, consists of folk tales collected firsthand from Kurdish storytellers and was published by Libraries Unlimited Greenwood Press in January 2008. Publishers Weekly stated, A storyteller in the grand tradition, Edgecombe, is a virtuoso of the spoken word. So, do you have a story you can share with us? Yes, I do have a story, actually. This is a, a Czechoslovakian story. Once, long ago in Czechoslovakia, there lived a young girl and her mother. And although they were very poor, that young girl was always happy because she had a light heart. She never had time to go into the village she never had time to play with friends because there was always a lot of work to do. Every day she had to drive the goats up into the hills for, to find pasture. And while she was there, well, her mother didn't want her to be idle. While she was there, she had to spin a large bunch of flaxen fibers into fine linen thread. Now, they didn't even own a distaff on which to wind the flax, so the girl would put it around her head, and wearing this strange hat, she would drive the goats along. Now, sometimes she had to travel very far to find new pasture, and that's how it was that she found herself by this beautiful old birch grove. And while the goats were just munching on that soft grass... The girl set down the spindle on the ground. She tied in the flaxen fibers, and she began spinning and singing her favorite spinning song. Už je ta láska, už je pryč. Už je ta láska, už je pryč. 
One day she was spinning that flax into thread, spinning that flax into thread. She noticed someone watching her from among the birch trees. It was a slender woman dressed in white, and as the woman leaned towards the girl, a soft breeze just caressed her. Your song is so beautiful. It reminds me of when I was young. Tell me, do you like to dance? Dance? Um, I,、uh, I think so. I never tried. Oh, but you must dance, little one. Did no one ever teach you? Come, dance. Well, but I have all of this work to do today. Well, whether it is flax or whether it is thread, it will be here tomorrow. But maybe I will not. Come, let's dance. And so those two danced in and out among the birch trees so quickly, but so lightly that the grass was not trampled, the grass was not bent. And as they danced, their long hair wrapped itself around the birch trees and left strong black lines. Trub te trubu strasov gevierni sami so so shlechet nejivi atli de neprve ijeji hisloji v dobrem zemnoji takto zbroje drabi zbroje bez miškani požednani. Pomnite, pomnite, bez miškane pošnet nanite. Well, the girl went home skipping and dancing along, but when she saw her mother, she realized she hadn't spun the thread, and she hid the spindle behind her back. The next day, when the girl went off to the birch grove, she had the previous day's flax she hadn't finished, and this day's flax on her head, and she drove the goats quickly along. This day, she was going to spin all that flax into thread. She set her spindle on the ground, tied in the fibers. Ujetala, and there was the birch lady. She just dropped her work. Come, said the woman, will you dance? Oh, I can't today. Look at all this work that I have to do. If you dance with me, if you dance with me, I will help you in your work after. Wonderful," said the girl, and those two began to dance in and out among the birch trees so quickly, but so lightly. The grass was not trampled, the grass was not bent, and as they danced, the girl's long hair wrapped itself around the birch trees and left fine black lines. Trub te trubu sprasov jevjerni sami so so šlechet nejivi atli de neprve jižiči hišloži v dobrem zemnoži takto zbroje. Oh no! The girl realized it was sunset, and she was already late. And she drove the goats quickly along. When she got home, her mother was waiting for her. Where is the thread? Oh, I didn't spin any. You didn't spin any? No, mother. I, I wanted to dance. My daughter, we are poor. You must not dance. We must work. I know. Well, the next day, when she left for the birch grove, she had that day's flax, the previous and the previous. She was hardly able to lift up her head as she walked along, so weighed down by the flax. It's a bit like we are today, not even able to look out and peek, see how beautiful the day is. She got to the birch grove, and there was the lady in white holding out her hand. Will you dance? Dance? I mean, look at me! I can't even walk with all this flax. Come," said the woman in white. "I will help you. Didn't I say I would? I can do it so easily." And she took all of the flax and put it on a long birch limb that reached out like tapering fingers, and swinging and swaying together they spun. Ujeta, ujeta, laska, uje preach, ujeta la. They spun together, and there it was a spindle of the finest. Linen thread. Come," said the woman. "One last dance, I will teach you." In and out they moved among the birch trees, so quickly and lightly the grass was not trampled or bent. It was like they were the wind, 
through the trees. Who knows how the wind comes, how the wind goes. Come, said the woman, I want to give you a gift. And she gave the girl a birch basket. Don't look inside until you're home. I won't, said the girl. Goodbye. Goodbye, birch lady. But on the way home, the girl thought, I wonder what the birch lady has given me. She likes me very much. And she opened up the birch basket. Oh, it's only dried birch leaves. She was about to take them out and scatter them on the ground. And she said, No, I'm going to keep every one. They're going to make good bedding for my goats. When she got home, there was her mother. Where is the thread? Here, mother. My daughter, look at how fine this thread is. You could never have spun this. Oh, I had some help. Some help? Yes, mother, there's this woman. She's really thin and dresses in white, and she lives in the birch grove. My daughter, you have seen the spirit of the birch grove. I hope you were nice to her. I hope you were kind to her. Oh, yes, mother, she likes me very much. She gave me a present. She gave you a gift. Let me see. Oh, mother, it's only dried birch leaves. <laughs> Let me look. They pulled out the birch leaves, one by one, in the darkness, and with time, each of those leaves had turned into a leaf of pure gold. Wow, what a <laughs> presence. I love, I, you can't see this because you're listening and you can't, but Diane is a very, comes across to me as a very humble, quiet person. And, and I do the same, I think. I like to think in conversation. And when she was telling, her eyes were shining, just shining. Because of that story, I have to bring us, I have to distract us for a moment from this interview. Sure. I have to tell you, in Maine, the birch trees, they grow together, the groves. And the grass grows short. And the birch trees spread as far as you can see, each one almost like a blade of grass. Mm. And the silver of the trees shines against the sunlight mm. and when the wind comes because in Maine the rock is so close to the surface the trees themselves sway in the wind and the ground breathes you can see the ground held by the roots of the birch trees breathing from the wind blowing through it Wow. <laughs> I will look for that. I will definitely look for that. And um, it's interesting because in that story, I do think the wind is this important secondary uh, player that gets brought in in, in the dance. And, and as I was working with the story, it just the wind just seemed to be coming up as this other kind of like hidden hidden character, hidden, hidden teacher. And it really is true that the birch trees do dance really with that swaying and with the wind and I was I remember when I was on a train going I think it was to Poland and I had been working on the story already for a while I remember looking out of the train window and seeing the birches and of course it's Eastern Europe so it's going to be the same kind of birches they were very tall and very slender not exactly like our birches and it was just really helpful to see the birch trees that they were looking at when they were creating the story, how tall they were and how incredibly slender. And just to imagine what it would be like to walk, to pass in among those those groves too. Because, of course, these stories are born in a landscape. And the birch is very, very important over there. I told this um, story as part of my I have a walking journey through the Arnold Arboretum of tree myths, and this is the last story that gets told, and it's on a hill of birches just as the sun is setting. And speaking about how the birch really has this beautiful meaning to the people who, who live in, the, in Russia and Eastern Europe, on one of these journeys, as we finished the story under the birch tree, there was a Russian daughter and her mother there. And the uh, Russian mother just 
she just took off her shoes and she just started wandering through the birch grove and singing this very old Russian song. And it was just a beautiful song. And, and it actually ended up last year for the first time being part of our performance, but we heard it the first time from her. But it was just this beautiful... Is that the song you're using just now? No, I've got. it's a Russian song, this song. I, actually, it's a beautiful song. I would like to even uh, share it um, at some point if if we have time. But it was just that a story told in nature can have this kind of resonance that it really brings people back to their childhood, to this special um, time in childhood, well, speaking about time, when time feels different. And there's this more of a oneness with nature, more of a bonding with nature that happens during that time. And we've really gotten separated from that in our lives and part of my whole journey with nature mythology has been about trying to reconnect myself with that that kind of feeling that I had when I would go out into nature when I was young, you know, and and just I, you could feel the landscape around you just kind of vibrating, even like when you were talking about seeing the land breathe. We don't always have those moments of perception anymore. We're very filled with thoughts, and we're very, very linear. Where am I going? Where am I getting to? And to actually be able to relax into a place in nature and just be there is is difficult for us. And I find that stories and myths of nature have this have this connecting thing that can help to settle us so that we can actually experience it and, and reconnect with the place reconnect with the with the living being in nature and that's the thing too is that these nature myths really honor that these are living breathing as you said i don't even know what to call them entities but you know they're just with us they're on the journey with us there's um, a moment in this Australian Aborigines story that we also tell during this Arboretum. When I say we, it's myself and the Celtic Harper, Margot Chamberlain, who also is a singer, and we do most of this material together. In this Australian Aborigine myth, um, the creator was supposedly spoke to the people every morning at sunrise. So there was this really strong connection with the people and with the creator, and he was... Uh, guiding the people about the mystery of this world and, and, and sharing that with them. So they always had this connecting moment. They got tired of getting up at sunrise, and so they abandoned the place and the creator left. And then they got taught practical things. And, and most people are like, okay, it's fine. Uh, you know, good. Teach me how to, you know, use the computer or this or that. This is all we need to know. But some people were missing that uh, that connection. And they went back to the tree where they'd gathered, and there was no creator. And there's this moment in the story where the people are just crying out. They're crying to their dead. They're crying to the creator. They're crying out to any one who will listen that they know at that point. They say, we are so lonely with only ourselves in the world. And I think that's how we're isolating ourselves from nature. There's a little bit of a sense of loneliness. So there, I just, that moment in that story I think is so powerful. We are so lonely with only ourselves in the world. And what ultimately ends up happening, the creator does not return, but sends lightning down through a tree into the ground and sends it as a sign that he has not only entered that tree or she, it's not clear, the creator's entered not only that tree, but every living thing. So if the people want to be taught about the mystery of the world, they just need to listen because the creator is going to come through the sounds of every living thing. And that's an amazing thought. So you think about breath, like you were talking about breath or the earth breathing. I love that everything has breath. And and there's a sound with breath. I mean, the wind, I mean, what is the breath of the wind? Or, you know, the river, you know, um, you know, what is the sound of the river? What is the mystery that's in the sound of the river? It's about, it's a mystery about journey. The, the sound of the river is about the mystery of its journey. Um, the sound of the bird wing, you know, or the call of a bird. I mean, there's just so much in sound. 
This is Doug Elliott, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. Danger. Most interviews that I do, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I know a lot about storytelling. But the danger of interviewing about environmental storytelling <laughs> is that I know so much more about this topic. And my temptation is to respond to everything you say and to go into each depth and talk about my own stuff. So I just need to recognize that, that I have so many things come from me that I don't... Too. Yeah, I know, but I also want to hear your perspective, too. Mm-hmm. But this is the story that comes up for me when you say sound. We had a group of house wrens. Um, I live in a straw bale house, part of it straw bale. And there is a truth window. It's a window where you can see the straw. And we never installed the glass. Mm-hmm. And that was actually outside the house, and we built an addition over it. And so there's an old bird's nest there. Mm-hmm. And it's inside the entryway of the house. And we left the window. We propped the the door. Excuse me. We propped the door open for several weeks because it was hot. And house wren decided that they were going to nest in that nest. I found out later that the male house wren builds uh, anywhere from four to twelve nests, and the female picks one. And mm-hmm. she decided that was her nest. And then the female and the male bring several thousand spider eggs into their nest. Oh my god! <laughs> I didn't know that. Wow. And so we had a house full of spiders. <laughs> my daughter was not happy. I mean, the daddy long legs she liked. The wolf spiders she was not. I was constantly like, <laughs> so. But at one point it was just so nice. We opened the window eventually because we had closed the door for, at some point, and they would go in and out the window feeding, feeding their children. At one point, I just liked the noise of them going out of the window. So I opened the door of the house. What happened was the door was cracked open one time, and the, the male, who's kind of protective, came in the door, and he couldn't get back out. So I had to open the window of the house. And I just loved that sound of his wings. And because he's a house wren, he goes right down into everything. He goes underneath the furniture, and it was just so magical. It got I, I enjoyed it so much that I propped the door open on several days. <laughs> And he would come in the house and hang around and sit on stuff. And it was just hilarious. And I could totally understand why people love having a trapped bird, a canary or something. or Because it's just, it's just such a magical noise. The wing, the wing, the wind right there. And, and because he was a, a – you know, birds have different zones they travel in. And the house wrens are brave birds. They're down there on the ground. Right there, in death's death's door, you know, and it was just anyway. There, it's the story about wings. <laughs> you know, and birds. I mean, talking about mythology. I mean, birds have this very deep and rich uh, mythology associated with them. Of course, um, you know, just as carriers of the spirit um, at death and um, or omens um, there's there's something about the spirit of birds that we can sense this very special quality in it's interesting when we were talking about that and you said something about the wolf spider and I said oh they could be scary it's very interesting how stories about something or attitudes about something um, you know can can be altered if you get the right myth or the right story so that people can have a window into a kind of creature, which we don't always get. I, I, I did want to mention a little bit about the, the function of nature mythology because I think in my work I found that the more that I knew about how nature mythology was supposed to work in, um, in, an, in an intact culture, the more that I could understand these fragments of myths that we encounter these days, because really, as Joseph Campbell kind of put it, like the 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 sky has fallen, the mythological sky that like was a hole before. If you were in a culture, you would walk outside, and everything that you would see would be part of this overarching mythology. And I'm ta- I'm not talking about the historical religions because that's a whole different ball game, like the Christian or Judeo or Muslim. Those are historically based religions. I'm talking about the more nature based religions. So. First of all, these these stories were told it were part of a particular landscape, so they can't always su- survive pulled out of the landscape. I saw this very clearly um, demonstrated one time to my total delight because I'd been 
I've been knew that the the mythology was supposed to function in the landscape, but I never ever really saw it or heard it in that moment. I was on the west coast of California and driving with my husband, and we saw this all these um, osprey circling, like a lot of them, and they were diving down. There's something going on over the cliff. So we went down the cliff, and there were ospreys circling. There were pelicans. There were giant sea lions. And suddenly, one of the sea lions reared back his head, and he had a huge silver fish in his mouth. And he whipped his head back and forth, and that fish cracked in half. And there was a bright pink, and it was salmon. And suddenly, we see all these backs just under the surface of the water, and we realize we're seeing a wild salmon run. This is the, it was the Klamath. It's, it's America's last wild river. We're watching this, this incredible thing. Like, this is what, um, this is what America was that they always talked about. So this was, first of all, a vision. It was like a feast, a door, a window into that other thing that I've heard about. And here it was. As we're watching, a salmon jumped out of the water and swam past us on the sand up the beach and it was just one of these moments we just looked at i was just i just couldn't believe it these salmon are gigantic so um i rushed over and it was just like it just lying there it wasn't even struggling it had just miscalculated i think the mouth of the river so i i picked up king salmon and i brought him down there and i uh, waited right in and put him in the water and i pointed him in the right direction and i said go that way but as I pointed them in the right direction, I saw people with nets across the river, and I saw, I could tell that they were Indians. They were the Yurok, the native people of that area. So later that day, um, I went out on a kayak with a park ranger, and this is why I'm so happy that um, a lot of the rangers and naturalists are learning um, some of the stories that have to do with the landscape. Please marry them back together you know please let's not let all the magic be bled um out and he had learned this story from the Yurok who had told it to him so we're out in these kayaks on the Klamath and meanwhile we know underneath us are passing all the salmon even though we can't see them and we know we know one of them and he starts telling us the story of this time not just of this place but of this time and he said, you know, in the old days, the people were very hungry and they didn't have enough food because their their crops had had not produced enough. And how are they going to make it through the winter? And so the old ones who were the spirits, they called sea lion. They sent out a call for sea lion and sea lion came chasing the salmon before him into the nets of the people and they were fed. And so that... The people might never have that dying famine hunger. The old ones change themselves into those rocks. And either side of the Klamath, there are these large rocks that look like um, dark, hooded figures looking out to sea. They change themselves into those rocks, and he showed us the rocks. And he said, and every year they call sea lion, and sea lion comes chasing the salmon before and so it was living it was living in the landscape and I just felt so lucky that I was actually there at at a time and place configuration where, where you could see how it was a living breathing thing in the landscape this kind of story and this kind of meaning so there's there's all this meaning for the people the, what the sea lion and the and the 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 food, you don't just eat the food, you're eating a gift from the old ones. So we are, we are nourished not only physically, we're nourished spiritually when we eat that salmon. And, and that's what some of those nature myths really do is they, there's a nourishment there that, that's coming, that's spiritual at the same time as physical when you have something that also relates to food. Does it make any sense, given what you just said, for urban dwellers, for city people, for those who have spent their entire lives separated from the landscape, to hear stories about places that they have never been to. 
Well, I think it depends on what you're trying to carry for, what you're trying. I mean, somebody's telling the story, right? When I mean, you're not talking about just reading, because if you're reading it, you may be on a search and you'll know when you found the right thing. If you're telling, you're trying to carry something forward. So it depends on what you're bringing. I think that this that all of us in an urban environment, we're in we are desperately in need of that. And it's one of the things we feel like we're missing. We don't quite know why. There's a lot of I mean, especially people coming to America, and I've seen this more and more. I mean, I have been able myself to have some connection to the landscape just because my family has been here the, for 400 years. So they had a relationship with what you can go out and you can pick something, you can eat something, you can do this, you can do that. And there's a, But when people come over and they go out, they're afraid. They're afraid to eat this or to eat that. So there's, even, even at a certain basic level, there's this kind of a, a fear about the landscape. And I've noticed that, too, when sometimes um, inner city kids, I've brought them out guiding in a nature area, and they are terrified, whereas I would be terrified in some of the neighbors that they, neighborhoods that they have to live in. So it's, it's extremely important, but not just to hear the story. I really feel like you have to get into the landscape. This is, these stories are a bridge. They're not just... The the point the problem is is that is the cutting off of the roots. The problem is not um, just we need to hear the story, but we need to try to get the roots going back too, so that it's a relationship. So if you're hearing a story, and that's why we're trying to bring these things out to the trees, this thing in the arboretum. If you're hearing the story while something is there, you're getting more of the root, and also there's a resonance because these stories were supposed to have some kind of mana, some kind of power, especially the creation myths. If you're telling a creation myth about a certain thing in nature, then it is supposed to be connecting you, the teller, and the listeners to that beginning time. It actually was supposed to have the beginning time present. So this is a huge responsibility. This is a, this is a big deal, and that's why some Native American cultures and, and some other cultures don't want people just telling these kinds of creation stories because they're religious and they were supposed to be power stories and you don't want to dilute that from by somebody using it wrong in a wrong way but these creationists were supposed to give power back to something in nature even if it was in a time of difficulty so these stories were supposed to be told the birth of a child or the you know the founding of a building because it was supposed to put the power of the creation and of the mythology there these are some of the most powerful stories that we still have, these nature myths. And they, they feed us. I mean, you even think of in the, in the Christian, in the Old Testament, you even have one of these, like a creation myth, nature mythology. I'm not talking about Genesis. I'm talking about Noah's Ark. Because that whole thing, that terrible flood that comes, with people are just trying to save every kind of species of animals. And really, this is a story for our time. And then they finally send out, you know, the birds, and not knowing what's going to happen. And they finally, the, the bird comes back with the branch. But it's the creation of the rainbow at that point. I don't remember what the exact phrasing is from King James or whatever version I have, but it's, you know, I do set my bow in the clouds and it shall be as a promise between myself and the people that I will never again destroy the earth. So you look at the rainbow, which is already this such beautiful uh, thing in the sky. And it's linked with the story of love and hope from the creator, and it creates this song, really a song of beauty, and just in your spirit, you can ring with that. And you have to you have to go to the place of living them, of believing them, to have this really ring. And that's true of, of the nature myth. It has to be told in a way that it's, there, you have to find the truth in it, whatever the truth is for you, so that it can really ring. I mean, sometimes... If I'm telling some nature myth to some kids that come up to me, I just goes, you know, is that true? Be- just because it, it has to be told as true 
to even have it ring. And what do you say? Uh, that depends if the teacher is around or not. <laughs> also depends if the teacher is a science teacher or not. I say, well, this it is it is a it is a truth that has to do with with this particular. Well, first of all, if it's from a certain culture, I will say it's told in the culture as true. Yes, um, and I said this is not this is not about facts. This is not about scientific facts. This is that has a whole different facts go in this direction walking linearly it's it's about cause and effect this is about does it feel does it feel right does it feel right and i said this feels right to me and i and it sings for me i like to say um uh it depends on who you're asking (laughs) (laughs) i think listening to you i'm i'm reminded one of my great blessings of growing up in new york city is that i reached a certain age when i realized that there are many natural things inside the city. And though the scale is off, it's really New York City really should be a cliff ecology, and we mm-hmm. insist on bringing a forest ecology into the city. It's a direct quote from the Gaia Center in Manhattan uh, when it was before it went defunct in the, in the late 90s. The idea being that New York City in particular is full of rivers. It's full of trees. And it's full of birds and other animals, dogs, cats, humans. And all of these things, or many of these things, were picked by humans to come in, but they were not necessarily designed or thought of by humans. And there are many stories, like you're describing, about each of these objects that you could bring into that environment and you could tell kids those stories. You could bring those kids someplace. I wish I thought of this when I was living there. You could bring kids to that place. You know, I did think of this. I created this camp, and it was called, um, it was a four-day camp through Bank Street. Unluckily, I didn't create it early enough. I left town. We did. It, we ran it once, and we didn't. If we'd done it for three years in a row, Bank Street would have kept it because it was so cool. It was, each day was a different environment. Mm. So one day was water, one day was earth, mm. one day was sky, one day was fire. So... So we went, like, we went to the deepest place in the Manhattan. We, we took the kids, we actually took the kids on subway cars to the deepest tunnel so they could stand there. And we said, this is the deepest place in the ground. And we talked about it. We talked about the environment that was there. And we, we took them to a bridge over the river. You know, we took them to a high, you know, we took them on the ferry across the, and we, and then I told them stories in that environment. I've like totally forgotten this whole experience. That's and the point is that you can take these stories anywhere. So don't be saying, I, I know you, I know some people listen to Diane and going, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to get to Washington to, to watch the, um, is it Washington? Boston. No, no, we're the, uh, salmon. Oh, uh, California. So I'm not going to be able, I know some people are listening to this and they're, they're saying, well, I'm not going to get to California and to be able to watch the wild salmon run up, you know, the river. Yes. I know there's a tree near your house that has never been genetically messed with that you can find a story for. Yeah, it's very important. As, as a person I once know who worked as a jester once said, joke what you know. <laughs> it's almost a story what story what's around you, you know, that's we need we need to be in fully in our environment. I mean, you're talking to me about that experience with the children. Um they can be on fire just in in like a terrible dusty backyard lot i remember i was telling these kids i have a story about this girl who picks up earthworms and then it ends up helping your oak grow so i was like let's go now out into the schoolyard i mean this is in the middle of boston where it's really built up and they did have a little schoolyard and i thought oh, i'm sure i can find some earthworm castings so you know the kids troop outside with me they're just like so excited <laughs> about the field trip i'm gonna go look for earthworm castings and as we're looking for earthworm castings, one of the kids turned up her head, and there was the pale uh, face of the moon that sometimes appears during the day. And she just went, the moon, the moon. And all the children were like, oh, the moon, the moon. And they were just filled with that joy that, you know, it's just like, it was beautiful. So, yeah, you don't have to go somewhere and go, I'm seeing this or that. It, it's It's... It's living around us. It's, it's, you know, who can be separated from the moon? 
you know, even that is there. Um, and there's so many wonderful uh, stories about that. I collected stories in the Kurdish region of Turkey, which you know. And one of the things I made a very special mission was trying to find out what are their how and why legends of nature. Because those stories are often collect- connected to the mythology and the old mythology. And I had heard there was this figure, Khazar, who is like green. You know, he's called Khazar, the green one, was near the pond. I couldn't find anybody who knew about Khazar. But finally, I found some star myths and stories. But it was very interesting how practical the people had become because I would say, do you know any stories about how the stars came to be? You know, I was thinking how and why legends. They, were, they said, ask the astronomers. So they were already thinking scientifically that they didn't know when I was just trying to find their their beautiful stories from that were rooted in their in their culture and their story about the moon. I mean, I would love to tell it. It's it's not too long and it is just they said that there was a Kurdish girl and she was so beautiful. She shone with light. Her name was Heave and she was a shining girl. Well, her mother was preparing dough for bread for the tandoor oven that's in the ground and she mixed the flour and the salt and the water and the yeast and then the mother realized she didn't have enough water and this dough was really dry and sticky and she turned to Kiev and she said Kiev she said go down to the Ghani and the Ghani are these fresh springs that just are all over Kurdistan they're just coming right out of the ground they're beautiful go down to the Ghani and bring me back some water so Kiev is going down the Ghani and as she's going down Everybody is just stopping and just staring at her. And he said, what is everybody looking at? She didn't even know how beautiful she was. And that was another aspect of her beauty. She got down to the spring. She got the water. She was starting back. And everyone just wanted to stop her. Who are you? What tribe are you from? And so she was very late coming home. And her mother was angry, waiting for her with her, her dough-covered, sticky hands. And she was so angry with Heave for being so late. She put her dry dough all over her daughter's face. And Heave was so upset. She's standing with her face covered. She called out to God. She called out Hwede. She said, Hwede. She said, take me away from here. And she disappeared right in front of her mother's eyes. And she became the moon, shining, beautiful, always up in the sky. But that's why there are those dark spots on the moon. That's the dry and sticky dough from her mother's hands. And I just love that because of the beauty of the moon shining and and the foolishness of, that we sometimes have to not recognize, not recognize the beauty that's right in front of us. And I actually think that ties in with, you know, there's a tree near you or there's a recognizing the beauty, the livingness, trying to find the story. Because I think sometimes think that when people were, when these stories were evolving in a culture, people were trying to find the secret, let's say the name, the secret, the hidden name of that being in nature. Because they felt if they could find the story that was like from a same source that might have created this thing in nature, that that they would have named it and linked with it. So I, I think it's really important to look for those things. I think... There's an interesting perspective here that someone hearing the story you just told might say, well, that's clearly not true. You know, the moon is clearly not a young girl's face. Like, that's just not possible. Therefore, the story has no value because it's false. And and what you just said in terms of the story is not about the creation of the moon, though it's mentioned, of course. It's really about appreciating what you have Mm -hmm. and it's about Mm -hmm. honoring the ones around you Mm -hmm. and the moon becomes a reminder of that lesson Mm -hmm. and then it's incorporated into our life if we see the moon if we notice the moon we remember the story and we remember to appreciate all we have and then we have a moment of gratitude when you build stories that are incorporate the environment you have whether it's an urban landscape or wilderness landscape, I'm, not, I'm making this up as so I'm going along here. <laughs> you are building an emotional landscape for yourself that is supporting you. That's right. That's right. That's what. That's what I'm 
hoping that people will see that. And it's not just like a teaching thing, like, oh, well, we should know then to appreciate. I do think that what people were trying to touch was the essence, the hidden essence behind this particular thing in nature. I remember talking to a friend of mine, Max Pilar, who was a sea lot master. And sometimes if you talk to people from different cultures, you get, because this is not a really Western sensibility. This is not a Western sensibility. And I was talking to Max about the calling to be a storyteller. And he said, look, storytelling comes from the same time as when things were created. It comes from that same period of time. And it has those different elements. He said, what's happening now is that we believe that the world is dead. And we have made this beautiful world to be dead. And we're dead too. We don't believe that it's alive. And he said, look at... um, Look at a a stick. Throw it down. Believe that it's alive. The stick turns into a snake. You didn't make the stick turn into a snake. The stick remembered that it was alive. He said, go to the river. Go to the stone. Believe that they're alive. They will tell you their story. Now, he was telling this. This is absolutely what he believes. And sometimes you talk from people from different cultures, too, and things are happening in that culture. You could say, how can that happen? That's impossible. That's magic or whatever. Are we to say that those things don't happen? Are we to say that all those things have explanation? I've noticed, I don't know if you have, but I've noticed in my walking with nature mythology, things happen that I'm going, that's impossible. Or synchronistic things happen, like that salmon coming up on the beach. That you're just going, there's, there's something resonating here. I think nature, like storytelling, when Jung talks about synchronicity, I think nature, like storytelling, is one of those, one of those very porous doorways, because there's doorways and everything, very porous doorways where um, breath and spirit can go in and out and enter. Um, So I don't know if you've had similar experiences, but I really, you know, the the nature will will resonate with you if if you're tuned with it. To me, what we're talking about is a willingness to build intention to open up the possibilities to walk into the world with the eyes of a child and there is a point when we do lose our innocence and we must choose innocence not that we should behave innocently but that our eyes see with an innocent eye And if you're listening and you don't know what I'm talking about, all I can tell you, because I can't make you do it, I can't even show it to you, all I can tell you is it is so worthwhile. And part of that, too, is this idea that um, Tom Brown and, and John Young talk about, which is the idea that when we are lost, when we have no more expectations, that is the moment when the most amazing things happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's quite true. You know, I the we're in an incredibly the western culture is linear. I like to think about it sometimes that way. Past, present, future. We are on that continuum. And story is not even though it has narrative, which is very interesting. I think narrative keeps story grounded <laughs> because story is filled with so many things, so many moments. And a moment is vertical. It is about being present. It is about this moment existing. I'm alive right now. That is a moment. I'm experiencing this now. Narrative keeps the nows together. But so I think that what what one of the best things that story can do is it can connect us uh, to a different perception of some of the things in nature, just to entertain, just to entertain the idea that trees could be this or that, or just to entertain the idea that the moon is like this. Sometimes, it, as you said, crazy, in an emotional landscape, let's say the moon is heave, is this girl, suddenly we, we might feel this longing for this beautiful thing that's now so far away and it enlivens our emotions and it connects them with the landscape 
So before I take people into the Arboretum, when I'm talking about that, taking people on this journey, when they come in, you can see the linear thing. People are looking at their watches or they're talking or they're thinking or they're putting aside their pocketbook or you can see all the pistons firing of the, you know, I'm in a social situation, blah, 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 blah. You want to get them to a different time frame, which is being at peace, just suddenly being at one with nature. So I do try to set it. I say, look, we're going to go out into the world and our stories are going to be our guide. And just let's just let them show a different way, a different way of seeing, different way of seeing and and see if something speaks to us there. And also in between the stories, be silent. So try to take, unplug that kind of mental habits that keep going on. And during the course of that walk and that performance, people get worn down, that those habits get worn down. People stop with the, what am I going to do next? And the stories over the time, by the time people get to that birch grove at the end, and the performance ends with putting a birch leaf just down on the ground and everyone had become pure gold. There is like a, a sigh. Nobody's getting up to go. Now, we told them it was going to be a two-hour journey. It's been a two-and-a-half-hour journey. It's getting cold. The sun has set. But we're just there, sitting under a tree. And it's been the most incredible journey to try to come to that place with people. After 9-11, I don't know if this happened to you, but for me, everything in my life went into question. What is the value? What is the value? And that journey, taking people on that journey, stood up to that. And I'm not saying because of of me at all, because really, Margot and I know we are intermediaries. No, we're not the intermediaries. The story is the intermediary between these people and these trees. And we are the, I don't know what you call us, the vessels of word, we're not even the intermediaries. And I think story does that. People, over time, these evolved in cultures, they're trying to find just the right, just the right tuning of that tale. And as tellers, we have to then take what we see as a structure, because we're not getting it told orally, so we know just the right tuning. We're getting a, a blueprint of it, let's say, and we have to inhabit it and live it in a way that we're we're hopefully connecting people to a different way of seeing this world as alive and alivening enlivening ourselves like you said like an emotional landscape we're we're awakening our emotions in relation to the natural world and i think you have to do that distance you have to entertain the idea that for a moment you're going to believe this story why because it helps open to you to the beauty not just of the story because the stories are beautiful or profound or touching or um but to open you up in a a special way to that creature in nature. It helps create those links that we've lost since we left childhood. That's a great way to end. (laughs) Just about used up our hour. Okay, my name is Michael Cotter, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. So do you have an offer we could share with the audience? An offer. Well, if um, I would be happy to hear from anyone who's been uh, a listener on this podcast and would love to hear stories that they might have of something synchronistic that happened to them in nature that might relate to storytelling in nature. And if I get a critical mass of 15 of these, I'll create some kind of... um, blog kind of thing where, where, where we could kind of bring some of those things forward. What's your website? It's www.livingmyth.com. Hmm. Um, and where is this Arboretum? Is this an ongoing thing? You think it'll keep going on for years hence? The Arboretum is an annual event, and we do our that's part of our summer solstice offering, actually. We do it right around the summer solstice, and we also have a winter solstice performance that we do at the Arnold Arboretum, which is a, um, it's in Boston, Massachusetts. 
It's on the arboretum. It's, I think it's one of the. It's I think it's the America's oldest arboretum. I'm not sure, but the specimens they call them specimens. These guys are gigantic and beautiful. So it is in Boston, Massachusetts. I do it every year in the summer with my Celtic Harper. If people would like to come, um, please. I think I'd like to offer the audience that I am organizing another environmental storytellers retreat in the year 2013. Um, you can look at the past one we did in 2010. If you go into Google and you type, type in Eco Retreat Storytelling Space 2010, you'll find the blog. There's sound samples. There's a report on the blog. There's the organizational structure. There's other links to other environmental stuff that go, going on. And I invite you to join the National Storytelling Network's Environmental Discussion Group. Uh, we have a Yahoo uh, group where we discuss some of these things sometimes, <laughs> um, but I also invite you to go to the blog and the uh, Blogspot blog and just read about what we did the last retreat. And if this is past 2013, I invite you to do that same search just instead of 2010, put 2013, and you'll find all sorts of stuff. In addition, I'd like to remind the listener that if you're interested in learning to become a storyteller, if you're an environmental educator that you can get a free e-course at www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash storytelling. It's a nine-part e-course called Zen and the Art of Storytelling in Seven Simple Steps. If you have already signed up for this e-course, you will receive alerts um, if I ever do workshops or coaching sessions in Yellow Springs, Ohio, or elsewhere in the country. And lastly, I'd like to invite you to take a few minutes to go to the blog, artofstorytellingshow.com, and write a question or a comment in the comment section on the blog. This interview has a blog post, and if you haven't already found it, you can find that blog post by clicking the Environmental Stories topic section or the Earth Stories topic section, and you can find this blog post and you can make a comment in the blog section about what you thought about this conversation and and uh, your responses to these uh, to these amazing ideas that we're talking about. Do you have any final words of wisdom for the international storytelling community and environmental education community? I I just say we really it's very important at this period of time to bring the old forward to find out what's valuable in the old stories because um this is the time they need to be carried forward and re-enlivened so that they can enliven us. Part of this conversation that I want to end with, I want to kind of hold up a little bit, is this idea that stories and place are intertwined. And that if you don't have any stories about your place, you can make them up. And if you want to have a science-based story, a story that brings people into the environment, it's probably a good idea to go out into the environment and find out stuff about that tree or that object. Now, I wouldn't suggest making up uh, porquois, what they're called, stories. Porquois, how and why legends. How, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't actually make up how and why legends. I find that when I see people doing that, it doesn't really make sense to me or anyone else. But having said that, I've seen people pull it off. <laughs> um, I would suggest making up stories about interacting and feeling comfortable even creating some fiction. I did a great interview with Doug Elliott about this topic of going out into nature, having encounters in nature and bringing that back into your storytelling. But what I'm talking about here is just going out in the environment, learning what's there and creating really interesting stories about those objects. So a great example would be going out into a park, learning one of the trees in that park and then creating a story about that tree within that park. Maybe the tree uh, has interaction with a bird, and there's a whole story about the tree protecting a bird from some predator. Whatever it is, the story has its own emotional narrative, and then when the children see that tree, they will connect both to that tree and to the emotional narrative that, 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 that story holds. Diane, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was wonderful talking to you. This guest has written a post for the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com. This post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website, plus other additional information about our discussion. If you want to respond to this show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com alerts. 
and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved. just got tired of getting up every morning at sunset. And so they just stopped coming. Getting up every morning at sunrise. Oh, (laughs) I'm thinking about last night. (laughs) We had a very big party last night. (laughs) Um, You, the teller, and the hero, it hearers, excuse me, you the teller and the heroes. That's interesting, huh? Listeners. Okay.